tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. Great joy and good afternoon, my friend. The Nepalese Meditation Bowl is chiming, centering your mind and delight on the art of the CEO. The show that brings you the most fascinating and really the most helpful leaders in the business community from around our terrestrial orb. I am Bart Jackson, your Hieronymus Bosch of business. And as you carry yourself through the halls of commerce, don't you ever wonder just how the stock exchanges and the market really work and what forces are at work inside? Well, this day, by the graces of Fortuna Ganesh and some death planning on your host, Bart, we have with us an expert, Dante Alighieri, to guide us to the Stygian swamps of the markets. Yes, we have uh, Alfred Berkeley, a cogent gentleman, former CEO of NASDAQ, major innovator uh, in financial systems reporting, and an acknowledged voice of digital security, and also a self-confessed market junkie who currently co-chairs Princeton Capital Management. So, uh, we're going to bring in all the wisdom, hopefully today, of the sage and wisely dry-witted Mr. Berkeley, and whether you are a paper company magnet, uh, ever with his eyes on international markets like George, or you're perhaps a lifelong nurse practitioner who studies the market seeking just a little income supplementing investment like Mary, pull up your chair a little closer and partake of our feast of wisdom all carefully cuisined to make your career thrive and your ventures flourish. Al, I thank you for taking your eyes off the market and coming to join us today. Thank you, Bart, for having me. Well, it's uh, this is going to be fun. Now, Al, you were the third president of NASDAQ from 1966 to 2000, I understand, and then you served as vice chair till about 2003. And you really oversaw one of its early greatest growth leaps. Uh, and could you tell us just how uh, the what are some of the new opportunities you brought to investors when you took the helms, and what what made NASDAQ so attractive? Well, I inherited from Gordon Macklin and Joe Hardiman a uh, finely tuned machine that was working very, very well. Uh, it does amazing things for the country. As you know, the secondary markets, uh, the exchanges, are trading stock that companies have already issued in the past. That enables right. people to have confidence that they'll be able to sell what they buy, and that allows the companies to raise money in what's called the primary market, where the company sell stock and the money comes to the company rather than to some other seller. So I inherited a machine that worked very, very well, and I inherited it at a time when the Internet was just beginning to take off and the tech revolution was beginning. And NASDAQ, of course, was the home of most of those technology companies. So it was a, it was a wonderful time and a very interesting period for the, for the U.S. economy and the world economy and for the technology industry. Specifically, what I set out to do was to uh, substantially lower the costs of trading by bringing the price of our services down for the broker-dealers who use our market 
and have them compete that lower price out for the consumer to enjoy. So we uh, added to the capacity of the market. We changed the uh, pricing model and the pricing uh, levels, and we saw volume explode uh, as prices came down and price elasticity, price elasticity of demand took over. Mm-hmm. Well, I I understand that, but you all and and. You were, in many ways, the right man at the right time with the right product and technology. But you also engineered an entirely new strategy for marketing the market, as I understand it. I mean, traditionally, exchanges pitched straight to the businesses, thinking, you know, if I have the best offerings, the customers will follow. But you inverted that. You went straight to the investing public. Uh, And so, Al, tell me, how does one go about branding a stock market and creating awareness in, in American homes? Well, Bart, you know it's interesting because I had a wonderful guy named Brian Holland who had come over to run our marketing operations. He'd been in the credit card industry before, and he Ah. uh, hatched the idea of ignoring the marketing to CEOs and going directly to to the investing public. We took the initials, the National Association of Securities Dealers Automatic Quotations, made that into Uh a shortened term called NASDAQ, and created a brand out of it essentially by uh, being uh, innovative in the way we talked about the market and advertising it in uh, very specific ways to a core target market that had savings. There were about 61 million households in 1996 Uh who had savings, and they are, of course, the market that's able to buy equities. Uh, We found out by uh, lots of research that the best way to get to that market was through sports and through news. And so we focused our television marketing on sports and news programs, and we built an image around uh, the 10 or 12 CEOs whose stock traded the most, uh, Bill Gates from Microsoft, uh, Craig Barrett and right. Andy Grove from Intel, John Chambers from Cisco, for example. And we were the first right. people in the history to put a, a, a web URL, www.nasdaq.com, into a television ad, and we used those television ads to drive people to this newly created website. And we took aided awareness, which is where you're helping the person remember something, from 18% right. to about 92% of our target market. That is fabulous. Although if I if I listen to the uh, business and economic media today, there are no households in America that have savings. But uh, <laughs> I think that 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 really shows not just an in, uh, you had a great innovative innovative kernel, but you did it and uh, you implemented it with a good lot of re- uh, research and uh, very very impressive. Okay, now with that teasingly tasteful nosh of today's piece of wisdom, allow me now to fulfill my duties as proper host and lay before you a few utensils for furthering today's feast. So first, first utensil, as I always do, allow me to remind each of you hearing my voice that the good Lord has gifted you with the title and privileges of chief executive officer of yourself. And since that's really the most important position you'll ever hold in your career, allow me to ask, will this be the day that you take a joy check and honestly answer, how much fun and joy am I finding in my workplace? And if it's darn little, consider some remedies or 
Will you continue to lean on the dark staff of discipline to trudge your way through? The choice, my friend, is truly yours. And as a second utensil, I can sense you are yearning to steep your lips into a little laughter and take a taste from the scriptural recitation of uh, the 102 Best Business Quips books. So I'm pulling it down. Here we are. Oh, okay, here's one. Here's number 37. Our firm's not worried about cybersecurity. The last hacker who broke into our account sent a sympathy card. <laughs> and uh, have, have you ever uh, met, a, met a firm like that, Al? Well, I have met firms that have taken cybersecurity lightly and regretted it. I have also <laughs> run into a circumstance where someone stole my mother's suitcase and returned the oh. living power, the living will and power of attorney that was in it, but did not return her sweaters and and clothes that were on that air flight. So I think uh, on the cyber side, you've got to take it a lot more seriously than that. Right. Well, you know, it, it is it is true. You're, I mean, your your ledger may announce that you hold very little fiscal value to steal, but uh, you know, if, if nothing else, you have built up your good name, business's second greatest asset, uh, and and so uh, you should try. Why not take a little pride in what you've constructed and, as Al says, take these steps to protect it? Uh, and if you smirk a little bit over that quip, by the way, we have them literally by the books full. Just visit bartsbooks.com and pick up your copy of 102 Best Business Quips or 101 Best Business Quips. And as a third utensil, um, we sumptuously spoon you the answer to last week's business quotation, and that is the name of the author who noted Nothing so needs reforming as other people's habits. <laughs> and those words were spoken by none other than America's most gently piercing humorous old steamboat pilot, Mark Twain. So stick with us, because later on the show, Blurting Your Way comes yet another enriching quotation. And if you are among the learned souls who knows the author of that quote, simply scribble that sage's name down as you believe him or her to be and email it right off to info at bartsbooks.com. And if you are correct, your knowledge will earn you a cerebrally swelling gift fresh from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. So with utensils in hands, now let's continue our trek uh, from NASDAQ to New Tech with the wise counsels of Mr. Alfred Berkeley. Al, one of the things you did with NASDAQ uh, was you, it was under your watch and, and your uh, encouragement that that marvelous sign on Times Square, uh, a quarter of an acre of lights, of, of uh, lead lights, uh, uh, gave the NASDAQ market site on. How did that, how did you do that, and how did that work out? Well, the idea originally came from a guy named Tom Apple, who worked at NASDAQ for a while, and again, uh, Brian Holland picked it up, and Joe Hardiman, my pre predecessor, uh, launched a prototype of that site down, actually down on Wall Street. What we needed was a physical place. We were a completely no. distributed electronic marketplace that nobody could put their fingers on. My mother, long dead, has, has, uh, used to say to me, where is your market? And it served great purposes for us to create a site. We call it the market site. It's on Times Square. And it gives us a physical sense of being, although not a single share is traded there. What is done there is that 13 networks have got offices there, and NASDAQ prepares for them all of the backdrop that they want by calculating all the stock price uh, ups and downs, 10 most this, 10 most that, 
and uh, ah. giving the reporters exactly what they want to make it easier to report on the market. It has increased the awareness of the market very, very substantially by making it easier for the media, which amplifies the market's voice, uh, to get mm-hmm. to get its message across. So it's not really a ticker tape as some people think it is. No, it's not a ticker tape at all. It's actually a television studio, and there are 13 mm-hmm. networks broadcasting from there. That's great. Okay. Well, you know, my grandfather uh, had talked, used to talk about the curb that uh, where they had plate glass windows, like you're talking about, and the guys would literally stand out there and through a series of hand signals from to the guys inside, scribbling on the ledgers, make the trades by people literally walking down the street. I guess what I'm, what I'm, and. He would he would look at this talk about this finally as very exciting times. You must have felt at that time. You must have felt some of that same excitement, right, when you were doing it. Well, we thought it was very exciting to watch the market grow. Uh, we really uh, loved the fact that we were providing capital uh, for literally hundreds of initial public offerings in those days, mm. and creating jobs and creating new products and and seeing real value created. NASDAQ and indeed the American innovative markets, not, not the markets themselves so much as the innovation, innovative companies that were being supported by capital raised on the NASDAQ, were really the, uh, the envy of the world. And I had visitors come in from probably 30 different countries uh, during the seven years I was at NASDAQ talking about uh, how do we get one of these NASDAQs for our country. And, of course, they needed right. all the basics first. They needed uniform commercial yeah. code, sort of uh, sanctity of contracts and rule of law. But once they got that, we could, we could help them build a market. Well, you certainly did move globally uh, and, and very rapidly and very effectively. Now, uh, just to fast forward uh, a bit into today's market, I'd like your thoughts on two distinct fingers, prodding the uh, the market pie. Investors and speculators, could you uh, share with um, the folks what each of these groups is looking for and and tell how that they how they're affecting the market that we actually see flickering before our eyes today? Well, we do have a tremendous uh, dichotomy between investment and speculation, although it's hard for the average American to see it or to understand it. Speculators perform right. a very useful role in the market in that they will buy from an investor when nobody else is there to buy from them or sell to an investor when nobody else is there to sell for them. They offer the immediacy that makes the market liquid. That being said, we um, struggle to find the right balance between investment and speculation, and all the American equity markets are dominate, dominated by speculators uh, right now. Right. Uh, that being said, but they're looking the for two different things, aren't they? They are, and and the speculator is looking at the supply and demand of interest in the stock, and the investor is mm-hmm. looking at the supply and demand uh, for whatever it is the company sells. In other words, the mm-hmm. investor is putting his faith in the management of the company and hoping that that will increase value in the marketplace for those goods and services. The invest, the right. speculator, excuse me. Uh, is in a quite different game. They're just wondering uh, who will show up with stock to buy or sell in the in the next uh, uh, next two two minutes or three minutes or five minutes, uh, and they can get in and out of the market many many times, hundreds of times 
if not thousands of times a day with electronic trading. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, uh, as I understand it, NASDAQ currently uh, trades over, I think it's 2 billion shares annually. And is is there a, a sort of a tipping point that you see within NASDAQ or within the general market itself towards speculators, the, 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 that investor-speculator balance that uh, is troublesome? Yeah, I want to make one correction. It's not annually. It's it's daily. Uh, the market daily. That's, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, daily. I, 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 and we've yeah, made it essentially friction-free and, and brought the cost down dramatically. Uh, what What's happening is uh, the technology has made it very easy for speculators to act in the market with less risk than they had before, and they have grown to fill that uh, that opportunity. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. bad, but it needs you need the regulators need to keep their eyes on it. Uh, the great uh, system in the United States, the SEC offers uh, very profoundly important oversight to the markets uh, in a way that essentially is based on transparency, and they want the right. market to know what's go- people to know what's going on in the market and be able to uh, trade or not trade based on full transparency. The FINRA, the the NASD's uh, new name in the last decade, uh, is a self-regulatory organization. Uh, Rick Ketchum, uh, who I think is one of the great regulators of all times, uh, Mm. really uh, opened the market up for uh, good, solid, secure, trustworthy trading. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, we're lucky as a country to have that combination of, of good self-regulation and good SEC oversight uh, that many other countries don't have. Oh, absolutely! I have to tell you, I brought my I bought my first share of stock when I was ten. I'm still under my father's guidance, and I am still investing. And I, it is that trust, uh, that absolute trust, that has made uh, has kept me and and I think so many other Americans investing. So, I think you're right. Al. You, by your own confessions, you, you told that you are a market junkie. You're always looking for the new thing that's coming out. But I'm, I'm just curious, what on this uh, money green earth ever inveigled you to so uh, into such a profoundly confusing realm of investing in global markets as you've gone into? Well, I, like you, uh, got interested in the market when I was young. At age 14, my godfather gave me 100 shares of Transamerica stock as an investor, ah. and I found out that mm-hmm. I could go to the neighborhood drugstore and pick up a copy of Barron's and see what the prices were, uh, and I uh-huh. would stand at the newsstand and read the prices of five or six companies that were interesting me, and then that just led my, led me into the market and uh, to Alex Brown and & Sons and then to Princeton Capital Management um, in a way that uh, seemed uh, natural and, and just sort of the course of life to me. Uh, I find it the ultimate chess game. I think these uh, companies competing with each other for uh, for product sales and for customer base uh, is the most interesting game there is. It's stirred. It's a pot of uh, wonderful uh, opportunity that's stirred by technological innovation and uh, mm-hmm. really leavened by the information flow that uh, comes uh, with the technology for communications. So I've, I've found it uh, captivating. That being said, uh, I tend to get in a little too early on <laughs> many new ideas and uh, have not been as astute as some of my friends about waiting for ideas to mature. I've had an awful lot of failures, 
un- unfortunately for the for me, the failures are uh, are, are not, not unfortunately, but fortunately, they're lessons to me, and I try to learn from each of them. And of course, you don't need many winners to make up for a lot of problems. So I've been lucky in life. Oh, that's true. Well, it was Baron Rothschild who said, and I always loved it: "Fortunes are made by buying low and selling too soon." <laughs> <laughs> and if you've just joined us, you're listening to The Art of the CEO, which every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time streams magically through the profoundly misperceived realms of cyberspace, where you may listen and download it by vi- visiting theartoftheceo.com. We are on several stations, but the easiest way for you is to just visit theartoftheceo.com for all our episodes. And at this point, I think uh, with our knowledge uh of the market and our appetite increase at the same time, I, why don't we take a gentle pause and, let's say, take a brief survey from our Feast of Wisdom and allow me to introduce you the companies by whose good graces we're here today. And today that firm is Prometheus Publishing, creator of, among many other divisions, Bart's Books Ultimate Business Guides. And you can visit bartsbooks.com to explore a wide wealth of practical wisdom from many business masters. And this very day, Prometheus Publishing invites you to look at two volumes, the very first of which is uh, the the one that actually launched this whole bizarre radio show, The Art of the CEO. It's, it's a solid guide which collects and distills the most masterful practices of business leaders from all around the globe and presents them to you to help your own career go forward and your own company to go forward. And it has been praised by radio show and, and himself, CEO, Daryl Gunter, as, quote, one of the best leadership books I have ever read, full of wisdom, what are you waiting for? So <laughs> doesn't get much more enticing than that. And this is second uh, illuminating volume is The Membership Economy by Robbie Kellerman Baxter. And this is a very real, if somewhat subtle trend affecting your life, my friend which Robbie points out and delineates how companies and consumers are identifying with the items they purchase. And she says they're forming tribes. Now, it's going to be up to you. You're going to love this book. But it's going to be up to you to say that if, as Robbie puts it, this is a true shift in our cultural thinking, or if, as your own host, Bart Jackson, says, it's merely a very sophisticated, innovative method of marketing the same old stuff. Go to Bartsbook.com, pick up your copy, and engage your little gray cells. Decide for yourself. And speaking of engaging your little gray cells and um, to move your mood back to the wallet and knowledge, uh, transfer your eyes and uh, hearts there, come back to the Art of the CEO's guest, the stock market master, Mr. Al, Alfred Berkeley. Now, Al, there's, uh, there, you talked about the uh, finger of technology in uh, the, the it, it effects of the markets very greatly. We uh, and one of the things uh, on the downside of all of that has been the the idea of hacking and cr- trying desperately to create uh, cybersecurity for all that uh, for this huge huge network. And so, are you? Uh, you had, had told me that there are some new chips and new applications allowing us to breathe a little easier concerning the fragility of our digitally purged markets. Uh, are you saying that, that you can actually now uh, make safe the whole network of the stock market with all its innumerable portals? 
Well, I think that the paradigm is shifting in favor of the ordinary citizen and against the hacker, and I'll give you a little mm. bit of background on how that works. I had mm. the honor of serving for 11 years, <clears throat> excuse me, the honor of serving for 11 years uh, on the President's Infrastructure Advisory Council. We right. were looking for uh, solutions to the cyber problem, and I became convinced that securing the network is a very, very difficult problem because there's so many entry points, as you mentioned. Sure. And there's the human instinct to open that email that looks like it comes from your friend or your mother or your grandchild, uh, and in sure, fact it's sure. a, a malicious uh, phishing expedition. So uh, what's happened with Moore's Law continuing to move along, chips have gotten bigger and stronger. The microchips mm -hmm. involved in computing are now capable of not only doing the work you want them to do, the accounting work or the communications work, but also encrypting and de-encrypting on the fly so that you can mm. uh, use software encryption methodologies now uh, to protect data so it doesn't matter if somebody gets to it. They can't read it when they get there. It's all garbage to them. The machines are now strong enough to handle that. There are a series of companies that are making products taking advantage of this. I've uh, been very interested in and I'm on the board of one called Security First in, in uh, San Diego and on the advisory board of another called Trivalent in Annapolis that are using these new approaches. IBM also has uh, products from Security First on the market, uh, a product called Multi-Cloud Data Encryption Services. Uh, it's coming. The government is using these technologies. Uh, some private enterprises are beginning to use them. Uh, it'll diffuse in the next five years or so, and we'll be much, much safer. Oh, that's great. Now, as, as I, I mean, data, as we look at data as a transfer, there's, there's a very brief time when there's data is in, in use, and then there is all the rest of the time, the, the vast majority of the time, when that data, uh, that precious data, is in storage. And so if is it right that if, I encrypt on the when is the encryption on the fly made right after the data is in use well there are two, there are three times the three states that data works in or exists in I see uh, one is uh, data at rest which is storage one is data in mm -hmm. motion which is communications and uh, the third is data in process when it's in the microprocessor being acted on in that accounting program or in that stock market transaction or in that uh, whatever it is. So you're exactly right. Uh, the percentage of time that a data uh, that uh, that uh, data exists in the microprocessor is literally milliseconds because clock speeds mm. are very very fast now. And uh, sure. you put the data, you pull the data out of memory, uh, you work on it, and you put it back in memory, uh, back in storage, and uh, it sits there for years and years and years. So the trick is to encrypt and then shred the data into multiple thousands of pieces and physically disperse those pieces so there's no one document, whole document in any one place. <clears throat> the same thing is true for data in motion. You need right. to uh, protect it when it's being moved around the network uh, uh, or sent to a different company or, or across the Internet or whatever, uh, and that uh, technology exists and is available now in, in standards that are very, very hard to crack. Uh, this shift of technology, the, the ability is already there. It just takes human beings uh -huh. a long time for these knowledges to diffuse. But it's beginning Sure, now. sure. Well, I, I sort of view this like uh, 
the knowledge of, uh, of of saving the poor workers who who did who used to do bridge pilings, that it uh, was developed that people could you could avoid giving people the bends if you brought them up slowly, and it slowly worked its way across from the Missouri River Bridge to the east. Not quite in time for the Brooklyn Bridge, but it did indeed get there. And uh, we, as you say, it is diffusing slowly, but but definitely. So, does this are, are we if this takes over the market, are we going? Do we really? Are we going to see a safe, a, a, a market as safe as it was uh, prior sure. to the new, digital the times? The new technologies are specifically called data centric because they're encrypting mm-hmm. and shredding and spreading the data. Uh, that's mm-hmm. opposed to network centric. There, there will be a role for net, network centric cybersecurity, and one company mm-hmm. uh, called IronNet is doing uh, significant work to make the network security uh, better by making it essentially real-time. The big problem in network security in the past has been that people didn't know they'd been breached literally for months, uh, 270-some days on average. The new approach, uh, the data-centric approach, uh, is much more secure, and it will will make it much more difficult for hackers uh, to get your uh, private information. It doesn't mean that some nation states won't be able to, but the crook, the uh, amateur, uh, right. really won't be able to with the new the new paradigm. That's fabulous. Al, I, I have one more question because we're, we're running late on last, and I wanted to devote a whole show to this, but you uh, are uh, an avid investor, a lover of the market, and um, – I just want to ask you one uh, – I want to get into what, what you're looking at in the market, and, and we'll have to do that on another show. But uh, if if I uh, am a young company, what do I have to show you to attract uh, your attention and make me worthy of investment? What What are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for products and services that serve real human needs and do so in a differentiated way, in, in a way that's uh, either better for the customer, more of a whole product, uh, or in a, in a way that's uh, less expensive, or, uh, or both. Uh, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I tend to focus my investments in technology, particularly in software, uh, but I'm mm-hmm. curious uh, and I'm interested in uh, companies that are solving basic problems uh, in ways that are hard for other companies to duplicate and really do the job for the customer. Excellent. Okay, one final question. Al, I uh, I know that you're uh, pouring a large portion of your energies now as uh, co-chair of Princeton Capital Management. If one of the if one of our listeners here is seeking some investment guidance, how might they get in touch with you and your team? Well, we're located on Hullfish Street in Princeton, and we have a website. Uh, if you were to Google Princeton Capital Management, uh, you would find us, and uh, uh, we'd be more than happy to talk to your listeners. All right. Thank you. And I, I myself have been enlightened so much from our conversation, Al. I thank you come to, for coming on today, and hopefully we'll be able to bring you back sometime later. I would love it. All right. Thank you very much, Al. And so today, as we round out uh, our day's feast, I am Bart Jackson, your curator of business knowledge, leaving you with today's business quotation. That is, who said life is too short? 
to live other people's dreams. And as a hint, this recently passed legend lived the dream that so many of us men still crave and brought about the playful bunny and true sexual freedom to global recognition. Remember, if you know the author of that quote, just scribble it down and send it right off to info at bartsbooks.com to win an absolutely career-igniting gift from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And be sure to tune in next week as we look at the very best and worst executive decisions. Um, Having a few chuckles, we'll learn a few lessons about those truly clever and most blunderful moves that sent organizations either teetering or towering. And as a parting shot, in the words of my wife's husband, a tweet may distill the entire concept of its sender and will instantly halt any further cognitive thought in its recipient making it ideal for politics and a disaster for business. And to you gleefully sharing our feast, I hope that you've enjoyed The Art of the CEO as much as uh, Alfred Berkeley and I have enjoyed bringing it to you. And remember, you may download this on all our shows at theartoftheceo.com. And finally, I say to you, who have honored us with your time, may I say as always, it has been a privilege. I thank you. <laughs>